the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Uh, My name is Simon. I'm uh, one of the leaders here at the church. Uh, Through the week, I'm uh, working at a a tech company and uh, also a stay-at-home dad. It's my privilege to take us through the the final one in our brief, brief uh, six parts in the beginning of John's Gospel. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 2 today, so if you could have that open in front of you, that would be really, really helpful. I'm going to have some words up on the, the screen for you as well. Now, if um, as we come to the end of Come and See, uh, here's something we can be doing. We can be praying together through John's Gospel. We, through the summertime, we like to do something called the Summer of Prayer This is a a reading for every day of the week, uh, through the summer, a reflection, and then something to pray into the life of the church. You'll have received that uh, via email through uh, that same email that goes out with our new sheet, which is called Focus. If you haven't got that, but you would like to receive it, just go to belmontexeter.church slash contact and sign up. And there you'll get our, our weekly news sheet. You can also pick up a paper copy just out, at, uh, out of the desk, out in the concourse. So it'd be great to be reading through John's Gospel together and praying together uh, through, through the summer. Well, uh, Christine has already mentioned that we're going to be taking a look this morning at the wedding at Cana which happens in John uh, chapter 2. And I wonder whether you've come across this story recently. I wonder whether you've come across this. A prominent individual who you all know uh, keeps turning up at weddings. He's the life and soul of the party. He brings the unexpected and he makes the day incredibly memorable. I am, of course, speaking about Hollywood A-lister Tom Hanks. He's described as the nicest guy in Hollywood, and for some reason, he's made it his thing, his thing that he does, to just crash weddings. So here he is. He's met this couple in 2016 at Central Park out in New York whilst he's jogging, and he just turns up, crashes the wedding, and gets some pictures uh, with the happy couple. The trouble about all this is that Tom Hanks has actually, he's actually made quite a thing of this. He's doing it again. Tom Hanks has crashed another wedding out in Pittsburgh this time. He's on a, a day off with his wife, Rita, spots a wedding and runs on over, gets right into the, the main pictures. And you weren't expecting that. Tom Hanks has crashed, crashed your wedding. But the really peculiar thing about this strange habit of Tom Hanks is that he's been doing it since 1993. Really bizarre, really bizarre. So this is Tom Hanks um, at the, uh, the filming of Forrest Gump. Uh, the first time he crashes a wedding, he just sees this wedding in progress and thinks, I need to get involved with that. Runs over and they get some pictures. What, what a bizarre thing to do. Tom Hanks, uh, wedding crasher. Well, by way of contrast, 
Let me take you to another wedding story. And uh, here's what I want us to take a look at today. Uh, We're going to see not necessarily a wedding crasher or anybody photobombing any pictures, but I want us to see the gracious and elegant way in which Jesus carries out this astonishing and astounding miracle. He's hardly crashing the wedding or photobombing the pictures, but in his abundant provision, he saves this wedding from shame and he averts disaster and he allows the celebrations to continue and the bride and bridegroom actually just remain center stage. In fact, if you read this really carefully, you'll see only a handful of people really see this miracle for what it is. And only a handful of people really grasp what's going on. But for those who do understand and for those who do have faith, they see that really it's Jesus who's at the center stage. And it's him who's at the center of the universe. That's some of the things that I hope we're going to see uh, this morning. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we read the Bible. Lord, thank you so much that we can be here today. Thank you so much for being together as church family and in your presence through the Lord Jesus. We do ask, Holy Spirit, please help us now that we might taste and see the goodness of God. Please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Let's uh, begin there with uh, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to take a couple of little breaks as we work our way through. Uh, Don't be alarmed, that's the way I'm doing it, okay? Uh, So from verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, a wedding is one of life's great moments. Uh, These occasions, they occur in all societies, in all cultures. Uh, They often reveal some of the eccentricities and the foibles and the quirks of a particular culture. I don't know if you can think back to a a wedding you've attended recently that's spoken of the the culture and the society in which it's taken place. I was once at a Swiss-German wedding where immediately after the wedding, the bride was kidnapped by two men in a dark car and driven off. I don't know why. That's just the... It's never really, really dawned on me why the Swiss Germans like to do that at weddings, but that's just what they do. It reveals um, one of the foibles and quirks of some of the ways uh, a culture does weddings. Now, wherever you are in the world, a wedding is a time of solemn commitment, celebration, enjoyment, feasting, laughter. And today we're going to discover how Jesus shared in such an occasion at Cana in Galilee. Can you cast your mind back? John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word Jesus became flesh, so like us, like you and me in every way. And made his dwelling, quite literally, pitched his tent among us. God comes to earth to be among us, so it's no surprise to find him here at a wedding. It's no surprise to find him here, fully immersed in the social and cultural event, dwelling among us. I don't think you've fully grasped 
the enormity of God coming to earth, unless you can perhaps in your mind's eye imagine Jesus and the disciples congratulating the new Mr. and Mrs. Or perhaps Jesus and the disciples hitting the buffet or the canapes. Or perhaps Jesus and the disciples hitting the dance floor. Jesus, engage and involve where real people really are. We've talked about that this year through the Frontline series. There's a map over on the wall there where we've put our dots, our places where we spend our weeks, and we've recognised that those are places, real places where real people are, where we can make a difference for Jesus, where transformation can happen. Well, let's carry on. Is there a conflict? Is there a problem? You bet there is. Verse 3, when the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Well, a wedding could last as long as a week. The responsibility to provide all the stuff, all the food and the drink, the venue, everything lay with the bridegroom. To run out of wine then was unthinkable in this honour and shame culture. It reflected poorly, not only upon the bridegroom, but upon the newly minted marriage, upon the wider family, potentially even upon Cana itself. To run out of wine really was a social disaster. There's a serious threat that this day is going to end badly, that this day is going to end with words like inadequate, deficient, worthless. Those might be words that you use to describe Yourself, your situation, your circumstance. Well, here's something encouraging this morning. Jesus has come to change all that and to bring change. Let's carry on reading. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus, still speaking to his mother, says, My hour has not yet come. Well, his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Jesus has rather enigmatically mentioned this phrase, my hour has not yet come. What on earth is he talking about? What's, what's this hour? When's this going to happen? Well, perhaps we should be a little bit surprised that it hasn't already happened. Do you remember some of the uh, John chapter 1? The word becoming flesh, God stepping into the world, yet according to Jesus, there's something bigger happening than that. God steps into the world, yet Jesus is saying there's something even bigger coming up soon that's, that's ahead of us that hasn't happened yet, this hour. If God stepping into the world as a man does not cut it as the hour, then what will? We'll make sure we return to that a little bit later. Well, verse 6, let's... Move on with the drama. Jesus intervenes. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. That's an awful lot. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they fill them to the brim. We're about to see the astounding way Jesus steps in. He may have come for a very particular purpose, his hour, which has not yet come, but along the way, he's going to do some amazing things. Notice, 
the gracious way in which Jesus is going to remove shame and bestow honour. The gracious way in which Jesus takes responsibility for something which is not his own. The gracious way in which he intervenes in the world at the request of those who know him. And the gracious way in which he extravagantly provides for this pending social disaster. Verse 8. Then he told them, the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The servants have already filled the jars to the brim and they continue to do what Jesus tells them to do without question. And their obedience shows just some implicit faith in what Jesus is about to do. After all, no one wants to take a cup of water over to the master of the banquet. And John 2 and verse 9. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water, they knew. And just think, just try and picture it. Transformation has now happened. Transformation's occurred. The servants obey, and suddenly, in a marvelous way, water, water has begun to acquire potency. It's begun to take on color, emit fragrance, and gain flavor. That's the kind of transformation that Jesus can bring. Bringing life and strength to something. Life takes on color. Becomes vivid. Emits fragrance. Is enjoyable. Is tasty. And gains flavor. That's the kind of transformation that Jesus can bring. Well, verse 10. This cup has made its way to the master of the banquet and he tastes it and here's what he does. He called the bridegroom aside, verse 10, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This sign is vast and extravagant. The bride the bridegroom, the guests, the master of the banquet, they've all been blessed by this astounding miracle. The wine is flowing and is the best of wine. Yet don't miss the fact that only a handful of those present truly know what's going on here. Only a handful of those present truly see the extent of Jesus' sign. Recall that the master of the banquet has no idea where the wine has come from. And so you get this brilliantly amusing comment that he gives to the bridegroom. It's amusing, it's ironic. He says to this unwitting bridegroom who should be receiving impending shame, disappointment, embarrassment. Instead, he receives the highest praise, honor and prestige from the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is saying something more profound than he could ever really know. After all, it isn't the bridegroom who saved the best wine until now, but it's God who saved the best wine till now. 
the wine Jesus provides is better than all that's preceded it. We read in John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, out of his fullness, Jesus is, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. And verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He saved the best wine until now. Jesus is bringing a new quantity, an extent of grace. We're going to cover just how enormous this miracle is in just a few moments' time. But he's bringing a new, just vastness of grace. This is going to the entire world, for God so loved the world. And he brings a new quality and depth of grace. You've saved the best until now. And verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now we know that this sign is extravagant, it's vast, it has incredible depths of meaning and significance. There are some real jewels and depths to explore here that you would have a great time looking at as you had to study this on your own, perhaps as you were digging deeper. You may have noticed that we've come to the end of a momentous week in John's gospel. We've read that John, uh, John has been letting us know what Jesus is up to the next day and the next day and the next day. If you keep an eye on all those days of the week, you'll find the wedding at Cana sitting on day seven of this first momentous week. A story that began with, in the beginning was the word, a la Genesis, is concluding with this comment about new creation and new beginnings on the last day of the week whereby our author and narrator John, is, he's audaciously and outlandishly saying that this book, the Gospel of John, is like a companion to Genesis. He's not so subtly claiming that this little book is a companion piece to Genesis. It's going to be about new creation and new beginnings. So it's only natural that the first thing John's going to do is tell us, a la Genesis, that this momentous first week ends with a sign of new beginnings and new creations. That declaration, this is very good. He saved the best till last. Well, this sign, why, why is it there? What's it doing? Well, why should anyone believe that Jesus is divine? John's gospel it provides us with some really clear, clear answers to that question. Jesus performed these astounding and astonishing miracles. They're unheard of marvels. Can you remember them? John gives us these seven signs. Jesus turns water into wine, making about 1,800 bottles of wine. At the point of death, he says a word and he heals a nobleman's son. He makes a man who's been unable to walk for 38 years rise to his feet. With the little that's in his hand, Jesus says grace and feeds 5,000. He opens the eyes of a man born blind from birth. And when a dear friend dies and he's been in the grave four days, he raises him from the dead. And then we have this ultimate and final sign. On the third day, that's also in our passage, on the third day, Jesus, having been crucified, 
dead and buried, is resurrected, showing his disciples his hands and his side. And it's through these signs that Jesus performs, stuff that Jesus did in the real world, that God's glory is uh, revealed. It's through the signs that God reveals his glory. And these signs are really important. They alert people to the wonder that when they see Jesus, are they encountering someone more than just a mere man or simply another guest at the wedding? And in that wondering, people are made ready to receive the significance and the meaning of these signs. In doing these things, Jesus is showing himself to be the true vine, the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. But here's the issue for you and me. We've got to concede something, haven't we? You didn't see these things firsthand. You weren't there. I wasn't there. We won't be seeing these things firsthand. That's okay. That's okay. We've got an eyewitness account here that lends credibility to all this. And yet what's being asked of us is the same of the disciples. Belief, trust, faith. And if you have any doubt today about the credence, the quality of these accounts, get yourself a copy of this. This could be your summer reading. Can we trust the Gospels? Did these things really happen? In this little book, it's going to go into incredible detail on why these, this book that we're spending so much time in is trustworthy. It's going to cover the geography, the topography, the botany, the economics, the language, the Greco-Roman and Judeo names and customs, undesigned coincidences, and much more. It's going to give you that confidence upon which faith can sit in the works and the signs that Jesus has done. But what is being asked of us is faith, belief, and trust. And that's okay. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Well, John's really clear and upfront about how and why he wrote this little book. Verse 30 and verse 31 of John chapter 20 tell us why he wrote it. And in a sense, he's saying he really did write this for you. Jesus performed many other signs. He did loads of them. Here we've just got a handful, seven. But these are recorded in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. There really is a sense in that this is written for you. Well, in a few moments' time, we're going to be sharing a communion together. And if you're familiar with um, this nation's history, then you'll know two phrases quite well, finest hour and darkest hour. And we'll use that just to explain that enigmatic phrase Jesus has used, my hour has not yet come. The mystery of what Jesus means by that phrase unravels as you go through the gospel. It keeps getting explained. It's coming, this hour is coming. In John 7 and verse 30, Jesus reminds his followers that his, time, his hour has not yet come. In similar circumstances, again in John chapter 8, he says, my hour has not yet come. And it's only when Jesus enters Jerusalem 
a handful of days before his crucifixion, that Jesus made this hour crystal clear. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he talks about his death. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Here's what's running around Jesus' mind in this packed wedding. He's there. People are pleading with him to do something about this social disaster, which is going to bring shame upon this uh, young man, his marriage, his family, potentially the town as well. Here's what's on Jesus' mind at the wedding in Cana. In a packed wedding, with all of those around him, Jesus, eating and drinking and having a party, Jesus knew that his hour, which would be both his finest and his darkest hour, was ahead of him. He came for a very particular purpose and a clear reason. He knew his hour would come. He had to go to the cross. And at this packed wedding in Cana, he had you and me on his heart from the get-go. That's what we recall now in communion. Clive.